Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today we're going to focus upon the China-U.S. relationship, which is an extremely important relationship. My guest is an expert on this topic. Dr. Elizabeth Economy is on leave from her position as senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Dr. Economy previously was CV star senior fellow and director for Asia studies at the Council for Foreign Relations. She's an award-winning author and internationally renowned expert on Chinese domestic and foreign policy and US-China relations. Her most recent book is The World According to China. Dr. Elizabeth Liz Economy, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Thanks so much, Bill. It's great to be here. Okay, you said call you Liz, so we'll just move forward on that. <laughs> it sounds good. Great. Well, it's a very fascinating book. It's a very important book. And I'm just curious, how, why did you decide to write this book? And what's, what is the main theme? There are many sub-themes, I'm sure, but what is the main theme of it? So I decided to write the book because um, I think there are still many debates ongoing in the United States and, and frankly, in other countries around sort of what uh, are China's ambitions on the global stage? How is it planning to realize these ambitions? And is China likely to succeed? Uh, and I thought, you know, the, the fact that we're still talking about these issues, the fact that we haven't come to any sort of resolution in terms of our understanding of, of Chinese uh, ambitions on the global stage, you know, after nine years already that the Chinese president Xi Jinping has been in power, I thought maybe there's something worth addressing in all of this. Uh, and so I decided to try to tackle that, that sort of set of issues um, and, uh, yeah, and, and write a book on it. Very good. Excellent. Now, Xi Jinping is someone who we're getting more familiar with. He has been in power for several years. Some people, some foreign policy analysts say that he's actually more popular than Mao Zedong. But that, that you may have another opinion on that. I'm not too sure. But uh, just briefly, who, why is Xi Jinping so important, especially as moving the foreign policy of China forward as we go well into the 21st century? Right. I think, um, you know, Xi Jinping came to power in November of 2012 and uh, as general secretary of the Communist Party. And then he was selected as president of the country in the spring of 2013. Um, what's significant about him is that, like many other Chinese leaders before him, he talked about uh, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, right, which had everything to do with China strengthening itself at home, but also asserting itself globally, and in many respects, reclaiming a degree of centrality on the global stage for China, its historic centrality when it was a great imperial power. I think the most important way in which Xi Jinping uh, differs from his predecessors, though, is that not only did he articulate this um, idea of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, but he actually had a vision for how to achieve it. Uh, and he has moved very uh, aggressively over the past almost decade now uh, to develop the capabilities uh, to realize his ambitions. And so I think it's that 
that um, ability of she uh, to translate sort of, you know, just a, an ob objective that sounds, you know, very uh, sort of esoteric, just the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, but to really make that very concrete and to make progress on a set of goals that will enable China to realize that ambition. One way that he seems to have moved forward on this is through the Belt and Road Initiative. Very briefly, what is the Belt and Road Initiative and how is that, uh, I guess, almost a perfect example of, quote, soft power, unquote, as opposed to hard power, which would be military type power or whatever. But uh, how is that unfolding and what type of program is it? Has it been successful? So Xi Jinping announced the Belt and Road um, in 2013 uh, in a set of two speeches, the first uh, in uh, Kazakhstan and the second in Indonesia. Uh, and it began initially um, as a, a hard infrastructure uh, sort of um, program, right? To promote connectivity from some of China's poor interior regions uh, to export markets uh, outside China and to contribute uh, to the sort of global need for, for infrastructure development. Uh, so it was really about ports and railroads and highways. And uh, there were six corridors that were sort of defined. You can, you can find the maps of the Belt and Road, the initial maps of the Belt and Road, and you'll see there are sort of three overland routes and, and three maritime routes. And again, this was very nice for Xi Jinping because it brought back memories of China's imperial past and the Silk Road, you know, and a time when China really, you know, was sort of the central power uh, globally. Um, so the Belt and Road has evolved since 2013, however, to include uh, many other things. First of all, many other countries. There are now upwards of 100 countries that have signed on in some form with a memorandum of understanding or something to be a Belt and Road partner. Most of them don't have any sort of Belt and Road investment, but they've sort of acknowledged the importance of the initiative. Uh, and he's moved it from being simply infrastructure, hard infrastructure now to have a digital Silk Road. So that's fiber optic cables and um, e-commerce and satellite systems. There's a, a polar Silk Road to connect China to Europe more directly. There's a health Silk Road, which sort of blossomed during the pandemic uh, when uh, she began to use the idea of the Silk Road to promote Chinese traditional medicine and to send doctors um, and Chinese medical supplies to countries that were in need. So, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea, it's a concept in many respects that has um, been given life by the practicalities of it, as opposed to here's what we want to accomplish, you know, in 20 years with the Belt and Road. It's, it's evolved and morphed over time. To your, to your question about whether or not it's been successful, uh, I think the jury is out. Um, certainly China has become the largest um, source of global lending for infrastructure. Uh, and you know, if that's a measure of success, then it's been successful. Uh, on the other hand, um, the Belt and Road in many respects is basically simply the export of the Chinese model on the global stage, the Chinese development model, which means sort of rapid infrastructure led growth that produces a fair amount of debt uh, has a lot of environmental externalities, um, has labor issues around it, and isn't very transparent in the deal making. You know, this is the way that China developed at home. But now this is what China is exporting abroad as it goes uh, through the Belt and Road. 
And in the research of my book, I think what I found is that while there are a number of countries where the leaders are very excited uh, about the Belt and Road uh, because they are looking for investment, and in many cases, China's willing to invest where other countries or multilateral institutions like the World Bank have not been willing to invest, um, either because the conditions aren't right or maybe uh, the return on investment isn't going to be uh, very good, but for whatever reason, the projects are not deemed uh, investable. Um, uh, that China nonetheless has produced, this Belt and Road has produced a lot of popular unrest. So you, you have buy-in in many cases from the elite, but the way in which China pursues the Belt and Road, which means in, in again, in many cases, you know, a lot of environmental problems, it doesn't do environmental impact assessments in advance, you know, a lot of labor issues because China tends to export its labor to do these projects. So you end up with a situation where the people on the ground are not necessarily realizing many of the benefits uh, of this investment. And there's just a lot of corruption, right? And we've seen in, in country after country that when new leaders come in, they often try to renegotiate the terms of the Belt and Road Agreements uh, because the terms were so unfavorable, probably because in many instances, you know, there was a little bit of money that was provided to the leaders' uh, own pockets uh, in some of these cases. So I think it's, it's hard to say whether the Belt and Road has been successful. It certainly has transformed China's presence on the global stage. You know, China is, you know, invested in, you know, everywhere, basically globally at this point, um, to some extent. Um, and, and that's one measure of success. But I wouldn't say if we're looking at popular opinion polls globally, that it's done much uh, for popular perceptions of, of China. In fact, it's probably been somewhat detrimental. Right. You know, it, there are pros and cons on this one, that's for sure. I'm just curious, China has taken a, an approach to, to making friends around the world and promoting Chinese products and that type of thing through trade activities. And of course, the U.S. and China are major trading partners and there are investments in each country. Uh, just very briefly, how do you see the tariffs that were put on by the Trump administration, and some of them carried over by the Biden administration, the tariffs or other economic uh, barriers, shall we say, to us interacting with the Chinese, and do they work or should they be continued, or is there a better way to do it? Well, um, I think, uh, you know, essentially the, the tariffs were put in place for a couple of different reasons. I think in part to encourage China to reform uh, the way that it does business, right? To, to try to push China uh, to level the playing field. Uh, and so, you know, China's put in place a number of uh, what we would consider unfair uh, business practices, you know, such as subsidies and non-market barriers uh, to entry, programs like Made in China 2025, which basically say, you know, China's gonna do everything it can to ensure that Chinese companies dominate in 10 critical cutting edge areas of technology that their firms basically control the domestic market. And you know, to that end, they put in a lot of policies uh, that are kind of secret, like for example, uh, saying to um, medical um, device companies, saying to hospitals that you have to purchase you know, this set of medical devices from Chinese companies, even if they're not as high quality as the ones we can get from, uh, from outside the country, uh, or you're not going to be reimbursed uh, through insurance for the medical procedures, right? Or you have to write a letter explaining why you're not going to purchase a Chinese-made um, medical device. So, you know, you have these kinds of, of informal 
regulations uh, that develop that, that actually prevent fair competition. And so I think the tariffs in some part were really a push to try to say, listen, you know, you're in the WTO, you're in the World Trade Organization, uh, we want equal access to your market, you have access to our market. Um, I think that's part of it. I think, you know, in, in other instances, um, you know, there are dumping issues. There are many, many issues, I think, that the United States has been trying to rectify with these tariffs. Um, and of course, you know, President Trump looked at it through the lens of a bilateral trade deficit, which, you know, many economists don't agree with that approach. Right? They, they say, yes, there is a huge, you know, bilateral trade deficit, but it's not about the trade between two countries, it's about the trade globally. So I think there was a, a mix of, of, of different interests that came to bear in, in with regard to the tariffs. I, I think, look, we have a process of tariff exclusions, um, you know, companies can apply for. I think it is recognized that in some cases, um, you know, that American companies have been hurting as a result of these tariffs. Uh, and I think there's a tariff review process underway right now in the US government uh, to look to understand better what has been the impact of these tariffs. So I think that that uh, assessment uh, of the impact is underway, and we'll have to wait to see what comes out of that. It'll be very important to find out exactly how effective they've been or how ineffective they have been. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guest. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a PBS or community access television station, or perhaps an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you have a podcast, or just a computer, and you like our show and you'd like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues. Today, we're talking about the US-China relationship, which is extremely important. And my guest is an expert on this topic. Dr. Elizabeth Economy recently authored a book, The World According to China. Liz, we're talking about, there's so many aspects. We could, we could talk about Taiwan. We could talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership just on across the board. But one thing I want to mention is how China seems to take advantage, and you can't blame them, every country would, I would think, to whenever there's a vacuum, they want to fill it. I, I think back to the Trump administration, how they voluntarily sidelined the United States at the, at the United Nations and many agencies like the World Health Organization and different ones like that. China filled those voids in a very quick way, did they not? They seem to move right in and, and wanted to exert influence and have actually increased their contributions to the UN. How important is that to how they deal with the world? This, this isn't the China of 20 years ago. They wouldn't have done that, would they? Yeah. Uh, I think you're right. Uh, this is not the China of 20 years ago. Um, but I would say that upon closer reflection, uh, that China actually didn't really uh, move to fill the vacuum that was left by the United States uh, when President Trump uh, withdrew and began to withdraw from a number of uh, international institutions and arrangements, I think upwards of 10 uh, in the end, uh, including you know, the process of, of, of removing the U.S. from the World Health Organization, the Paris Climate Accord, the Iran nuclear deal, the U.N. Human Rights Council, you know, and on and on. I think, it, you know, what I think the media, frankly, assumed that China would fill the void. And early on, Xi Jinping 
uh, pretty much stepped up and said, you know, we are going to be a leader on global climate change. We believe in globalization, you know, sort of set himself up right, as the anti-Trump figure. Um, but in the end, uh, China actually didn't manage to, you know, move the ball forward if we really look back over the past four years uh, or so of the Trump administration, they didn't really move the ball forward in any significant way on any global issue. Um, and so I think uh, in many respects, what we learned uh, from that this period is that while China desires to play a global leadership role in many respects, it still is confined, I would argue, uh, by a fairly a narrow set of self-interests. So it's interested in, in setting rules of the road. And I think in that respect, it has dramatically ratcheted up its participation, for example, in UN standard setting bodies and technical institutions, uh, you know, the, the groups that, for example, set the standards for 5G. Uh, so it's very much more active than it was before. Uh, and it has targets for its participation. And we saw that it included the Belt and Road Initiative, you know, in, was able to include it in something like 25 different uh, UN uh, agencies and programs uh, and have agreements with all of them uh, to support the Belt and Road uh, Initiative in some way. So while China was very um, assertive in terms of, of pushing its own interests, it's not clear to me that it really stepped up to lead um, in, in a way that, that sort of equated um, the, the rights that it wanted with the responsibilities that it was ready to assume. And so I would make that distinction that while it has become more active, I haven't yet seen it in a, in a really uh, substantive way, step up to try to think through and to forge agreements on issues. They could have, for example, stepped up and said, yeah, climate change, we're gonna lead and we're gonna think about an agreement on methane, right? Sort of a, a second um, a greenhouse gas, not just carbon dioxide. And the US did that, you know, with the Biden administration and now the, and the, and the, the last round of the, the climate um, discussions uh, in Glasgow, that did come out. That wasn't a Chinese led initiative. So I, I'll stop there, but I just think it's important to recognize the different ways that China has yes, become more active, but hasn't necessarily taken on the burdens in many respects that the U.S. has traditionally borne. And in many cases, it's more behind the scenes dealing with the issues and exerting influence and that type of thing. And of course, not just the U.N., but across the board, as you mentioned, with the Paris Climate Agreement. Of course, China still has a lot to do, and the U.S. too, to deal with this climate crisis that we're in right now. Before we run out of time, though, I'm curious, we're hearing a lot of of saber rattling, maybe in China, I know in this country by certain folks saying that, you know, the Chinese are expanding their defense budget, which they are, but it's not nearly as large as our $780 billion defense budget. They don't have nearly the hardware that we do. But where is China today on cyber warfare? Some of the military analysts and the private sector people are saying that if we ever got into a conflict with China, that their cyber warfare would be far superior to ours. They could knock out our eyes and ears as far as our planes, ships, and that type of thing. Uh, do you have any inside information on that? Where, where are we today? Not that I, we should even think about going to war. That should be off the table completely, uh, as I understand it. But anyway, how do you perceive that? No, I mean, I, do, I don't have any inside information on the Chinese capabilities relative to our capabilities. Um, I, I can only say that 
I know from, for example, like the Taiwan war gaming exercises, um, where a lot of media have reported that, yes, the U.S., you know, loses in a Taiwan war game with, with China, you know, that's played out here, uh, you know, that it, among experts, that it loses 20 out of 21 times, um, that those war games may not express, you know, the, the final outcome, right, that they are designed to, to test out certain scenarios and certain hypotheses. And so, you know, I, I would imagine that given our overall capabilities and our overall leadership in many respects um, in terms of, of cyber um, that maybe we're not as badly off as uh, as some people would suggest, but I honestly, I don't have any inside information. Right. We don't want to test it. So we can go back to every war the U.S. has ever been in and probably any country in the world and actually review it and no war went the way it was supposed to ever <laughs> it doesn't matter where it was and there and just one or two incidents one or two quirks could have changed the whole outcome of the war and that i think in just about every place now that i'm a historian but i've heard that from historians but anyway we down to our last few minutes unfortunately uh, let me ask you what are there three or four suggestions that you could offer today that would help us to, first off, to improve our relationship between the U.S. and China, and also to reduce this uh, saber-rattling or to reduce the, the possibility of some type of armed conflict. We can, have, we can have trade wars, we can do other types of things that aren't nearly as lethal, but are there uh, three or four recommendations you might offer? I mean, I think the most important thing um, is something that the Biden administration has proposed, which is that we want to have, you know, the types of dialogues, conversations and engagements uh, with, you know, between, uh, you know, people who are serving in, in the U.S. government and those in China um, in ways that provide guardrails, right? We don't want, right, the type of conflict around trade, for example, uh, that you're, you're talking about or Taiwan or any other issue. Uh, to devolve into some form of kinetic conflict. And so having an ongoing dialogue with, you know, between our two militaries, for example, is essential, especially as China expands its military presence in the South China Sea, for example. And I just want to say one thing. I think you're right that the U.S. Um, defense budget is much larger than China's, um, but China's military hardware is developing extremely rapidly and in some areas is more probably more advanced than, than what we have here in the United States. So I don't think we can take comfort from the fact that, you know, that our, our budget is larger given the types of advances. Uh, and, you know, China has the largest Navy in the world right now. It has many more Coast Guard ships, many more uh, cutters than we have. So I think, you know, when we start doing, you know, apples to apples or apples to oranges, I think we should be careful. Um, but I do think that that mill to mill dialogue is probably the most important thing that we can do to avoid any kind of miscalculation or accident, right, from triggering something more serious. Uh, and I think we've had a couple of, of little, you know, brush ups over the past uh, few years in the South China Sea. And we really do need to have the type of dialogue and, and sort of set of behaviors and principles and guidance right, from each side, again, to avoid anything like that from uh, escalating into something more serious. That's a very good point. I, I agree with you 100%. In fact, you just jogged my memory on this that the US Government Accountability, Accountability Office has said for years 
that 20 to 25 cents on every dollar we put into the Defense Department budget is wasted, that we're misspending it. And I don't know if the Chinese are doing the same thing, but you can't go dollar for dollar or yen versus yen or uh, yuan versus yuan or whatever it might be. But hey, yuan, yeah. Yeah, yuan. I, don't bring the Japanese into it, yen. My <laughs> mistake. But anyway, no, you're absolutely right. Well, these are extremely important issues. And of course, there were so many we could have talked about today, such as the, the future of Taiwan, what's going on in Hong Kong, the special administrative region, what, with the repression of the Uyghurs, all these play, all these issues play into China's domestic policies and their foreign policies. And of course, they're absolutely critical, but this is a very delicate relationship. It's a, one that we've got to be involved in because really China and the United States are two of the most important countries on the planet right now. And of course, given our military buildup and the nuclear weapons that we have, it could be a very dangerous, if not lethally dooming situation for the whole planet. But Dr. Elizabeth Economy, that's a very interesting book and I'm so delighted we had a chance to talk about it. But I wanna thank you so much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Thanks very much, Bill. It was a pleasure. And my pleasure. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television. Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you're involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives.